this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no don't sweat yo, cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is podcast. A jingly good time. Thanks for that intro. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for being here. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I very much appreciate it. Please subscribe. If you have listened to the podcast before, thank you for being back. Please leave a review. All of you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at there it is pod and you did hear that correctly there's some uh, some bells jingling at the beginning of this episode thank you to neil brooks for putting this theme song together this is a special holiday one that he did happy holidays if you celebrate christmas merry christmas if you celebrate hanukkah happy hanukkah if you celebrate anything else happy that i want to be all inclusive even if I don't know what it is that you celebrate. Thanks so much for being here. Genuinely, I do appreciate it. You can find old episodes and you can read old blogs on thereitispod.com. Today's episode is a great one. I'm talking to Amber Nash. She is an actress and improviser from Atlanta, and she is the voice of Pam on Archer. She's fantastic. I don't need to tell you that. You know this. So without further ado, let's get right to it. My chat with Amber Nash. I have a ton that I want to talk to you about. I really love all your work. It was great having you here in Greenville for the New South Comedy Festival. Thanks. It was super fun. Yeah, we, we had a really great time with you. We were very excited. (laughs) <laughs> to have you. Uh, I want to go back and talk about how you got into improv, because that's that's how you got your start in performance, right, with improv. Yep, totally, totally. And you have an interesting start when you got inspired to take improv classes. Uh, explain that a little bit. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. So I was um, in college, and uh, I was taking um, classes for... Um, a biology major <laughs> that didn't last because I realized that I wasn't smart enough to get a degree in biology. <laughs> um, and I was also kind of, I never really had a creative outlet when I was a kid, but I was always kind of a class clown. And, um, but I never like experienced theater in any real way or like, I don't even think I went and saw like a live show. That just wasn't something that my family did. Um, I don't think that's something that was very popular in the South when I was growing up anyway, you know? Um, and so I was just kind of looking for something cause I wasn't getting what I wanted out of school at the time. And, um, I was, uh, hanging out with a friend and he was like, Hey, have you heard about this improv thing? And I was like, what are you talking about? I've never heard of this. And, um, he took me to see a show at, uh, this theater in town, uh, called whole world. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, so cool. Like, this is what I've been looking for. Like they get to do whatever they want. It's funny. It's fresh. It's crazy. And, um, I signed up for classes that night and took classes at whole world for a few years and then met, um, some people that are actually, I met 
Tommy Futch, who is uh, the the head of a group called Laughing Matters, because I was working as a cocktail waitress at Dave and Buster's, oh, which wow. is like, do you guys have Dave and Buster's in we South do, Carolina? We we just got one uh, within the last couple of years, and I, I'd seen commercials yeah. for it for years, and then it finally came here, and I was happy about it's it. A, <laughs> It's a crazy place. It's a terrible it place to work. I'll tell you that much. Oh, I totally get that because just when I'm in there, even if no one else is there, it's loud. And I Oh yeah. I walked around there saying, I'm having fun, but I bet the people who work here are just tired of all the noise. Yeah, it was terrible. So it's like being a cocktail waitress at like a arcade for drunk adults is like what my job was. <laughs> right. And, Which, um, from the yeah. adult perspective, from the customer perspective, is hey, it's an arcade for, for drunk adults. <laughs> yeah. This is great. I just yeah, I just get to act really bad, like I'm a child and be drunk and an adult. It's crazy. <laughs> well, um, yeah, let's just be better at how we treat others. <laughs> right. Right. So it's just in general. <laughs> yeah, I agree in with general, that. please. Yeah. And uh, they they did at this Dave and Buster's at the time there was a theater there like called like Starlight Theater or whatever and they did murder mystery shows wow. and Tommy Futch who was the head of this improv troupe did murder mysteries there but he also loved flirting with younger women I was nineteen at the time and Tommy was probably in his late forties <laughs> and so he was flirting with me backstage because that's where their green room was, was uh, in the kitchen of this, of this Dave and Buster's. Mm-hmm. And so I was like on break or something. And he was back there, um, you know, getting ready to go on stage. And he was like, Oh yeah, I run an improv troupe. You should audition. And I did. And I got into that uh, troupe and I had taken like two classes. Like I didn't really have any idea what I was doing. And then uh, I met some people that were doing a sketch show at dad's garage. And that's how I ended up at dad's. So yeah, it was lots of lots of steps to get to to Dad's garage. So when you, what was the name of the theater that you first took your classes with? Whole World. Whole World, and how many classes did you take there? I think I took. It was like over a year. I feel like it was like a few levels of classes there. I think. Very nice. Um, Or maybe only two. I don't really remember. It was such a long time ago. Uh, so a couple of questions. One, how did you break it to your parents that you weren't going to be going down the direction that you had previously been going down? Uh, I mean, I'm not assuming that you dropped out of school or said, uh, forget this major dad and mom, but right. how did they take that? How did you handle that? It's funny because it didn't happen right away, but it did eventually happen. And so I, I, with with the biology thing, I was like, hey, guys. I'm not good at this. I'm not going to do this anymore because I couldn't pass like any of my chemistry classes. Right. And uh, so I decided on a softer science and I got a degree in psychology, mm-hmm. which I was actually really, really great at. I like really excelled at it. And I was like, okay, this is great. I'm on the right path. And then I graduated from college and I was going into the field. Like I got a job as a social worker and I was a counselor for uh, teenagers with like emotional and behavioral challenges. Mm-hmm. And I did that for three years all the while. And I li- it was a wilderness camp for mm-hmm. troubled teens. And so I would live outside with these kids wow. um, half the week and then go back to Atlanta half the week. And when I was at home, I would go do stuff at the theater and, you know, wait tables and, and uh, clean toilets and try to get on stage. And um, then, then, about three years into that job, I decided that I was going to quit and become an actor. 
And that's when I had to tell my parents <laughs> that I was going to quit my good job for the state and become an actor. And they, you know, like most parents, I think they were just like concerned that I'd be able to make a living mm-hmm. and rightly so. Um, but luckily for me, I quickly right after that got a job um, at dad's garage, like as, as an administrator and I became the education director there. So I had like, you know, a gig that paid a regular paycheck. So that really helped me in the transition. Right. Yeah. So you had enough there for them to say, okay, we still have something you could fall back on yeah, and yeah, yeah. you're, you've got a job. So that's yeah. good. Uh, so you don't have to move back in with us. <laughs> right, right. So that's how you do it. Kids, you get a job. Um, that's right. So, <laughs> another thing I wanted to ask about someone said, hey, you should check out this improv thing. So I'm assuming people knew you had a good sense of humor. Yeah, I guess so. I think I was I was pretty much a clown always growing up. <laughs> like I uh, I always like I was also pretty chubby as a kid. And so mm-hmm. I definitely used that as like a, a means to, to gain friends because I was never like, you know, the popular girl. And so I think that that kind of bled over into my adult life also. So I was always Mm. hamming it up. Right. Yeah. So fast forward back to where you were at Dad's Garage, and you are administrating there. So you have a a solid job there. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. are you, by this point, are you already teaching or are you still learning the craft and trying to get through uh, being on different teams? The funny thing was, is that it was both. So I probably shouldn't have been the education director because I didn't really know that much about improv yet. Because I'd taken all the classes. I'd pretty much taken every class in the city that was available at the time. Right. And Dad's Garage at that time only had two levels of classes. So I'd taken two levels of classes. And, you know, when you're young and an improviser, you think you know everything. And so I was like, oh, I'm an expert in this. Um, but We're I just think making I got, it up, right? It's easy yeah, enough. right? Anybody could do it. <laughs> and I think the reason I got the education director job is because I had experience working with kids because it wasn't just oh, yeah. teaching the classes at the theater. It was also like we did like a high school outreach program and, um, you know, we did um, a summer intensive for kids. And so there was a lot to it. So mm-hmm. I actually really kind of learned on the fly. Like I learned to teach as I was teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but I and that major was helping you out too. Totally. And I think because if I was kind of raw when I first began teaching, I think I might have been in some ways a better teacher then because I was just mm-hmm. like, we're learning this together. You know, it's like young people that have kids and they're like, I grew up with my kids. Right. <laughs> that's how it felt, you know? Oh, yeah. And that's something I as a coach, I feel like I'm still learning so much about improv. Yeah. Right? You know, I assume, though, that if I were to ask Jimmy Corain or some, you know, Sharna Halpern or someone who I've had on previous episodes, they would say, well, you're always learning. Yeah. So, and if you're not, then you're in big trouble. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be hard to... I think Jimmy Crane said on the episode that he was on that he learns from them, his, his students, yeah. uh, just as much as they're learning from him. So that's a good thing. It's just... Not knowing that early on when you are teaching yeah. or coaching, it can get really, um, it can get really, I guess, nerve wracking. I was like, am I doing this right? Am I, am I right. sending them down the wrong path? Am I totally, totally screwing this up? And then there's a whole generation of improvisers that you're responsible for. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, oh, they're not as good as they could be, and it's my fault. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, that's obviously something we don't need to really worry about because people are learning from multiple places. Right, right. So we can't really throw things off too much, thankfully. Yep. <laughs> so you were you were teaching then. What were some things, because that is a unique position that you're in. I think a lot of people are in that position that you were in at, at that moment in time. What were some things that you picked up on that really helped you and you continued to do until today? As a, as a as performer? A, well, I would say first as a teacher or coach. Right. I think the biggest thing, and when I, when I discovered this, I thought that it was like, I thought I was the first person that ever discovered this and that I was a genius. Mm-hmm. And it was, I was in a situation where I, I think I was introducing a game, like a, um, a workshop kind of game, not, not a stage game, to mm-hmm. the group that I was not fully familiar enough with to actually be teaching it. Like I'd learned it from somebody else mm-hmm. and I didn't really know what it was teaching. I knew it was teaching something, but I didn't know what it was teaching. And so it was a great exercise. Everybody did a great job. And then at the end of it, when I started to talk to the students about what we'd just done, I realized that I was kind of in over my head Mm. and I said, what did you guys get out of that? And I was like, man, this is the most brilliant move ever because now they're just going to tell me what it means. I don't even have to know what it means. Right. And then I use that. I still use it today because it really does, whether or not you know what something is teaching people, people are getting something different out of it anyway. Right. I mean, so I did the actually, same thing last night. Yeah. It's so much better to ask that question as opposed to just telling people. And sometimes they'll give you the same answer that you were going to say anyway, but sometimes you get something totally different. Then you're like, oh, now this game also teaches this thing. So later when I'm looking mm-hmm. something for something to teach this thing, I'll use this game too. Right. And that is the great thing about exercises is, is that you are implementing it so they can learn a specific skill or, or hone something right. uh, that, you know, it helps you with your memory or whatever. But then mm-hmm. when you start asking them, what did you get from that? Or what did you realize from that? The activity still triggered a whole bunch of thoughts. Yeah. That don't relate Absolutely. to what you did, what you were intending it to do. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really, it is a great thing because then you're just talking about things. And that's also, I guess, a, a teacher trick of getting people to talk about it from that perspective helps it be more ingrained. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it is a really great great trick. I wish I had thought of it independently, but I had to be told. So you're smarter than I am at this stuff. <laughs> so when did it transfer over to you really starting to get a lot, a lot of acting work and, and things? Um, you know, it's still, I think it's, that transfer is still happening. It's such a, you know, <laughs> careers are so difficult and weird and yeah. um, the... I started to kind of gain a name for myself as an improviser in town, like as a comedy person, mm-hmm. pretty quickly after I was able to quit my other job and just work at Dad's. And Dad's Garage luckily has like a, um, you know, a good reputation for being like one of the big theaters now in the city uh, mm-hmm. as far as comedy goes. And so I was starting to get, you know, get to be known around town and in, in certain circles. And then I think that the first thing that happened for me that was big was um, I got a role on Frisky Dingo, which was the Mm -hmm. show that the guys that make Archer were making before Archer Mm -hmm. that was on um, Cartoon Network. And the reason I got that job was because 
one of their animators was an improviser at Dad's, and they were just a tiny company back then. Uh, there was only like six guys that that made these cartoons, and uh, one of them's Christian Danley, and he was an improviser. So those guys would get off work, and they'd want to come see a comedy show, so they knew us, and we knew of them. So they would use improvisers for different shows, and they'd have us come in and audition for stuff, and so they knew me from the theater. And they had me audition for them. And I didn't get my first role that I auditioned for. Mm. And uh, which is normal. <laughs> like that's Very the other normal. thing you have to learn is that you have to audition for the rest of your life and get three roles out of it. Right. Yeah. Um, it's like maybe yeah. Julia Roberts <laughs> doesn't have <laughs> yeah, to audition. Right. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where it all started. But still today, I mean, people ask me, like when I, when Archer kind of became a successful show, I was like, oh, okay, now I just got to sit back and leave my phone on and stuff's just going to roll in. I mean, I got nothing to worry about. And that's the absolute opposite of what's happened. Like, Mm -hmm. you still have to work really hard. I still audition as much, if not more, as I did before. Mm -hmm. And like, especially even for voice work, like, I audition, you know, when it's a busy time, several times a week. And, you know, I've booked a handful of things. So it's, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's tough no matter where you're at. Yeah, there is a lot of that. That's the the groundwork that you have to do. That's the, you know, every job has that kind of work, whether it's doing the paperwork or, you know, just whatever kind of administrative work. For actors and entertainers, it's auditioning. That's the, that's the everyday plodding along (laughs) doing Mm -hmm. paperwork or whatever type work that actors have to do. uh, Yeah, totally. And we were talking about, you know, you never stop learning. Like, I'm I'm a more experienced improviser than I am an actor. So when it comes to improv, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still learning, sure. But, like, I got this. No big deal. Mm-hmm. And with acting and especially auditioning, like, I'm like, man, I'm still, like, so new at this. I could be so much better. And so even in your own craft, there's all different things that you're at different levels of learning for. And mm-hmm. I feel like for auditioning, I may it may take me 20 more years to get really good at it. You know what I mean? It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. But at the same time, it helps you to really get in the character quickly, more quickly than maybe a lot of actors can. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then I think that's why I think, too, we see a lot of actors in improv classes that are like, oh, yeah, my agent told me that I needed to put this on my resume. That's the only reason I'm doing this is not because I want to be an improviser. It's because I want to be a better actor. Yeah. And, you know, there's a part of me that hates that and a part of me that does that i mean i i right. enjoy improv i do love it i love comedy as well and i'm an actor and i do want to get better at acting so i want to be good at improv but you mm-hmm. can't do this sort of fake approach to improv and think that's going to help your acting career because you can get io or ucb on your on your resume but when mm-hmm. you come in for an audition and you're not strong because you didn't do actual work at the theater. Yeah, that's right. And that one workshop you took there just so you could put it on your resume, they're going to see that. Like they know. Who's oh, yeah. I- they know who's I.O. or UCB. Like they know who's yeah. really I.O. or UCB. They, they, they know the difference between somebody totally. who really is that or someone who just went there to get it on their resume. Yeah, so absolutely. You got to be earnest and have integrity no matter what. Yeah. Oh, no, there's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to do the work. You just yep, got to do the work. Totally. I totally understand wanting to do the shortcut, but 
Uh, yeah. This is not going to work the way you think it will. Mm-hmm. So once you got that role and uh, mm-hmm. with the Archer creators, and they created Archer, uh, mm-hmm. what is what has that been like for you? What's that whole adventure been like? It's been crazy. The first thing that happened was um, Frisky Dingo, which is the previous show I was on, got canceled, mm-hmm. and then the creator Adam Reed. Um, went on like this like spirit quest like he literally like dropped everything got a backpack packed it up and like went into the woods wow and we were like oh well that's the end of adam we're never gonna see him again he's like gonna grow a big long beard and um wear kleenex boxes for shoes and we're never gonna see him again (laughs) and uh then while he was out there he had this like he was i think he was like in spain or something he had this like stroke of genius that was the idea for Archer. And then he came home and was like, okay, let's do this. And I didn't know any of this was happening. I was just like, Oh, this previous job I had. And I was just a gigging actor. Like I wasn't mm-hmm. even, I uh, wasn't in the union. I was, they were paying me under the table when I was doing previous voice work for them. Um, mm-hmm. So I was just trying to piece together a career like any actor does, you know, like right. a, teaching a class here, taking this gig here, all that kind of stuff. And then they got the go-ahead because, you know, they had to go through the whole process of selling the show and writing the pilot and all the work that they did before they even started casting people. And I got a call from them to come in because they were making um, DVD extras for Frisky Dingo for the last season that I made. So, like, we need you to come in and record a few things. So I went in, and while I was there, they were like, hey, we want you to see something. And it was a monitor that had Pam's head on it. And she was delivering one of Val's lines from Frisky Dingo so that they could see what this character looked like with my voice. Mm-hmm. And then they just asked me if I wanted the job. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's just another thing. Like, it's just another right, voice Right, right. You have no job. reason to think it's going to be yeah. what it ended up being. Yeah. I had no idea. I didn't even know what FX was, the network then. I think it was a pretty new network. It was just like a spinoff of Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also didn't realize at the time that they had a great cast of like famous people yeah. that auditioned for their roles, you know, like <laughs> Jessica Walter and Chris Parnell. And so I was just like, yeah. And I didn't even have to audition for it. That was the craziest part. Yeah. They just gave me a role. And then the show ended up being a huge success. So I was just like, holy shit, what's going on? <laughs> and the funny thing is from an improviser's perspective, this is so funny. Only improvisers will understand this was I was, we had made the first season of Archer. I hadn't even seen it yet. I don't even think it had started airing yet, but we just finished recording it. Mm-hmm. And Second City was auditioning in Atlanta. And so I was like, shit, yeah, I got auditioned for Second City. So I auditioned for them and I got a job, but it was doing a show in Atlanta. And then after that job, they were like, hey, um, we're casting for these cruise ship gigs. And so it was a huge gig. It's six months. No, four, it was four months contract. You're living on a cruise ship doing shows. Like Mm -hmm. what improviser doesn't want that job? It was like the coolest job ever. And so I called Matt Thompson, the executive producer at Archer. And I was like, Hey man, um, I'm going to take this gig on this cruise ship uh, because it's awesome and it's for second city. And he was like, you can't do that. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you're on a TV show. And I was like, what? He's like, you can't leave and be on a ship for four months. Then we can't make the show. And I was like, well, I got to make a living. And he said, if you don't take this gig on the cruise ship, we'll put you in the opening credits for season two. And that's how I got into the opening credits. Oh, wow. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Because I was just an improviser that wanted to work, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. 
Now, how much improvising do you get to do on the show? Not a ton. We um, the the scripts are so tight, yeah, and they go through writing, lots yes. of rounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great writing, and the jokes are all measured out and perfect, and mm-hmm. they get notes back from the network and stuff like that. So it's all pretty solid. But there are times where, when we're in the booth, things aren't quite working, and Casey who is now the director, he directs all the episodes, he's also an improviser. So mm-hmm. he, if he's not quite hearing what he wants, he'll go back and forth with us from outside the booth and we'll kind of jam out some ideas until we get exactly what we want. Mm-hmm. So we'll always record what we, what's on the page. And then if something's not quite working, we'll try a few different things mm-hmm. just to have it. And I'd say maybe 20% of the time something different makes it in. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the improvising will be on like uh, everybody reaction line to something that's happened. Mm-hmm. And we'll find out that so-and-so um, recorded this episode two hours ago, and this is what they did and we liked it. So respond to that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a very different way of improvising, but we it don't is, do a yeah. whole ton of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, part of the reason I asked is because there is a Twitter account for Pam yeah. And I wasn't sure how much, uh, I mean, you're you're running that account, right? I am, yeah. I'm writing up for that account. Right. So you're writing in character for this character you play. <laughs> so I was just wondering yeah. how much of the uh, what's on the show is also you. Great, great question. So when I got, they asked me when they first started a Twitter account for Pam, they're like, do you want to write for it? And I was like, yeah, but man, writing for this character that's already got such strong writing for it, it will be really hard. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted like a bunch of tweets. Um, they wanted like a whole month worth of tweets so that they could approve them and then they would just oh, okay. send them out every day. Mm-hmm. So I sent them a, my first month of tweets and Matt Thompson was like, these are entirely too dirty. And I was like, what? It's Pam. What are you talking about? They're too dirty. So I had to rewrite all of them. So it took me a while to kind of get into writing in her voice. <laughs> and so the fun part is, is I've been able to create a whole side of her life that is not part of the show at all. Like she's got some, you know, secondary jobs. Like she works at a strip club as a bouncer and like just things she does in her daily life that I wish were on the show, but aren't. So it's been really fun to kind of like fill in the gaps of what you don't see on the show. Yeah. That's, that's really fun and interesting. That's, yeah, that's exciting. Because you get to have this extra spark of fun with the role that you're doing. Totally. Because of the totally. improv side of it. When the, and the, yep. the getting to write. Where to from here? What is your, you know, your dream job or dream situation? I think what I've really been wanting to do, like my dream is to have my own show one day. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of people's dream. Right. Um, like I'd love to have my own live action show. That's the other thing. The next the big step that I've been trying to make in a lot of ways is because I was started out as a theater actor. I'm still a theater actor. Um, and then I started doing voice work, but that's how people know me is as a voice actor. And it's like, but wait, I do all this other stuff too. And so trying to kind of break into doing more live action work and to do, to have my own show would just be absolutely amazing. And so last year or two years ago, um, no, it was last year, 2015, we made a, um, a web series called Heart of America, H-A-R-T, mm-hmm. and it's basically like a 10-episode web series that stars me playing four different characters, 
And so that was kind of like my first step into like, hey, guys, look, check it out. This is some of the stuff I can do. And we actually had a really, really fun time doing it. So we've been shopping that to networks and other ideas for shows and just trying to, you know, find interest and figure out what the next the next thing's going to be. Mm, very nice. Yeah. How do you, I and mean, this is just for other actor comedians like myself, mm-hmm. how do you work day to day and and keep the hope alive and just keep trucking? That's That can be the tough part. I mean, I'm lucky because I have a, a job that pays the bills. Right. That doesn't take up any time. Like, it, it takes no time to do Archer. I go in, like, every couple of weeks for, like, 30 minutes. <laughs> when people yeah. hear that, they're like, oh, my God, are you serious? Like, it's the <laughs> easiest job ever. Um, so that affords me time to like work on other things. And honestly, I think keeping the dream alive is just doing stuff that you're not always the best at. That's the hardest thing for me. Cause especially as an improviser, when you get to a certain level and you're like, I got this, I can do all this stuff. I know what I'm doing. And so you can go out on stage and you can have a solid show and you know, you can, but it's not you're not like pushing yourself or trying anything new or you're not having an incredible show because you're not taking any risks. And so mm-hmm. the older I've gotten and the longer I've been improvising, I've had to really push myself to put myself in danger. Like, like it used to be when we were younger improvisers and it was dangerous just because we didn't know what the hell we were doing. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. To keep pushing myself and finding new characters. And so, I mean, and we're lucky too at dad's garage that we can, we have a lot of space to try new things. And so we'll do, you know, we'll do stuff on our small stage on Wednesday nights that hopefully gets a bigger audience and then we'll move it to our big space. And then maybe something from that will end up being a video project. And so I think if you're a creator, you just got to create always. Like if you're a writer, you just got to write every day. If you're an improviser, you got to improvise in every way that you can and keep creating. And so that's what I try to do as much as I possibly can. That's really great. I was just thinking about something along those lines yesterday, but it was in terms of musicians. And Mm -hmm. it's true that any artist, if they aren't taking risks, if they aren't challenging themselves to do something that they're not so good at, then you can lose that fire. And because what is it about artists who like you you can think of uh, musicians who have been around for decades and their recent Mm -hmm. things are not as great and granted, you know, someone who has been in the music industry for 40 years is not going to write the hot new single that the kids are going to listen to just because they're too removed from that generation. However, right. they can still write really great stuff. Absolutely. And so when you don't see that, I was just thinking, why aren't they? Why aren't they mm-hmm. still writing something that is listenable or something that people want to listen to? And I think it's, I think that's it, is that they are not challenging themselves to try to do something that they still have to figure out how to make work. You know, they're, they're right. doing something that they've been good at for 20 years. And so yeah. it gets a little stale, a little stagnant. And failure, I think, too, when you get to a certain point, you're like, oh, well, people expect so much of me because I'm established or I've been around for a long time. And so people don't think failure is acceptable anymore. And right. when you fail, it hurts really bad. It's like at the older you get, the less like physically, um, you know, you do less physically demanding things because when you hurt yourself as an older person, mm-hmm. it hurts more and it takes longer to heal. But when you're a kid, you're like made out of rubber and you're, you know, you're <laughs> right. indestructible. And so you, you right hurt back yourself up all on the that time. Scooter, yeah. Right. And so I think it's the same thing as, as an artist, you get older and you get, you know, more rigid and mm-hmm. you're, people don't expect you to fail. And I think that's also 
as a, you know, as a society, we've got to be more willing to give people the chance to fail so that right. when they do, it's okay. And then the next thing they do is going to be even better because they took a chance, you know? Yeah, the industry has really conditioned people to talk about that sort of stuff in a certain way. Someone can take mm-hmm. a risk as an actor for on a movie, and the movie doesn't make a bunch of money at the box office like their previous movies did yet they maybe did great work in it but you're going to have just regular folk who aren't in the business saying oh this movie wasn't as good it's not very good right it didn't do well it's like no it's a good movie just you know wasn't something for everyone which is fine you know how many times totally Totally. that's how art is you walk into an art gallery you look at a painting and that either speaks to you or doesn't but this other one over here that one really speaks to me but then the one that you walk past someone else is saying oh gosh this is really speaking to me so we do need to get better at i think just so we can all survive this world a little better we do need to get better at allowing people to take risks because that's essentially what we like as consumers. We right. like it. That's the fun stuff is when someone yep. is just flying by the seat of their pants. That's when things are fresh. That's when they are just still trying to figure out what they're doing and how they're doing it. And Exactly. That's why people go to improv shows, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I don't believe in the uh, this sort of like weird you, – you hear people say this – they have this weird saying of, oh, audiences just want to see people fail. Everybody right. who goes to a NASCAR race just wants to see a wreck. That's not really true. Right. right. Like, it's because there's the risk of it that makes people excited by it. Because right. when someone does something that is death-defying and does not die, that's exciting. They're right. all going to be mortified if the person dies. <laughs> you know, so yeah. They don't want to see the person die. They want to see the person cheat death. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. And, and when an artist stops trying to cheat death, so to speak, then mm-hmm. it's less exciting. Yep. That's absolutely true. Like, I think I, I did a, a solo show a couple years ago, and the only reason I did it was because I was absolutely terrified of the idea. Like, because, you know, so a lot of people that do improv will oftentimes do stand-up, too. And people are always like, why don't you do stand-up? And I was like, because it's terrifying. I'm an improviser. Like, I'm an improviser because I like to have a team with me doing stuff. Like, I don't like doing stuff by myself. And so I challenged myself to do a solo show. And it was absolutely terrifying. And every yeah. night that I stepped on stage, I was like, I'm going to have a heart attack and die. <laughs> um, but what I told myself that really helped is that everybody out there wants me to do a good job. They don't want to come see somebody like having a shitty show and being like really scared. Mm-hmm. They want to see me have a good show. And so that's what was able, you know, that's how I was able to get through doing it. Right. Right. Yeah. How do we, maybe this is how we can end the interview, uh, figuring okay. out how uh, someone can continue to push themselves as you yeah. have done and continue to grow. Because I've seen people who've been in improv barely any time, uh, you know, a handful mm-hmm. of years or two years or something like that, hit a plateau and then stop trying. Like, ah, I figured this thing yeah. out. It's like, you can't figure it out in two years. It takes 20 yeah. years for some people to figure out yeah. what they're doing. So how does someone, what, what are ways that we can uh, try to figure out how somebody can get better and, and push themselves? What are they looking for? Is, is it, what am I not great at? think so. I, but then the other side of that, I think, too, is that um, 
not everybody has to be good at everything, which I think right. is another like pitfall of improvisers where it's like, I don't have to be good at doing accents because somebody <laughs> else on my team is, you know what I mean? Right. It's like, but maybe I, I want to be right. good at accents because, so, yeah. so that's one thing. I'm not good at accents, but I want to be good at accents. So maybe that's a good avenue for me to go down. Right. Right. But if right, I'm right. saying I'm not good at blank uh, and everyone that I like is good at that. And shouldn't I be good at that because uh, right. I'm doing improv? That's maybe not the right thing to go down. Absolutely. And I also think the other side of that is if like, let's say you're really good at like, my thing is that I'm really, I really love playing old men and I like think it's great <laughs> yeah. and I pull it out in every show. It is a lot and of fun when you do that. It really is. And so I, if you're really good at something and you know you can do it and you know you can get a laugh, it's like going blue. You know, it's like, well, how about for this show, you challenge yourself to not, not, not pull out your bag of tricks. To right. find a different, a different trick to get you out of that situation and not use a character that you know you like or not use a voice that you're good at or not use a storyline that's like obvious and easy. You know, I think that's the hard part too is keeping yourself from using the stuff you know works. Right. Oh yeah, that is that is part of coasting. Mm-hmm, totally. That, you know, it's it's not it's the opposite of taking a risk. Yeah, it's it's just saying, oh well, I know I can just throw this out there because after a while, if you aren't earnestly doing something, then it's. I've I've had this experience with stand up when there's a old joke like, oh, this joke always does well, so I'll just I'll put it mm-hmm. on the set list tonight, and when I told it. It's like kind of subconsciously, I mm-hmm. wasn't putting much into it, into delivering it. I was just kind of like, right. yeah, yeah, this will do well. But I got lazy <laughs> yeah. with the delivery. And so it yeah. didn't do well. So it's yep. the same thing, I think, with techniques or, or little tricks that we do on stage. If you start getting too confident in its success rate, yep. that we get lazy with even how we exhibit it then it'll mm-hmm. stop being that trick that we can always go to. Yeah, and it doesn't have that edge or that, like, spark of, you know, like the reason why improv's fun is that it's got that spark of, of uh, you know, inventiveness that's happening in that very moment. And the more you do stuff the exact same way, it's just like actors that do a run of a show where they're doing, you know, like a show for six months and they're doing mm-hmm. the same thing night after night. There's going to be good nights and bad nights. And the bad nights are the nights that you're like, just coasting, you know, because it doesn't yeah. have that spark because there's not something new that you're finding in that line every night, you know. Oh, right. That's why people talk about musicians or musicians will talk about themselves having to do a song for 30 years and like, oh, God. Right. That's why you see, like, I was talking earlier today with someone about how Joe Walsh has become the elder statesman of guitarists, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool. But uh, <laughs> I also years ago heard him say, jokingly, if he knew that funk number 49 was going to be the hit that it was, then he would have written it and that he a song he would always have to play for the rest of his life. Then he would have written a different <laughs> song. Uh, <laughs> and, totally. Right. And he was just at some event and it was a jam session. So there was a ton of guitarists up there. And he's now that guy who can like toss it to someone else to do the guitar solo. That's awesome. Point to someone else to start a guitar solo, and then he finishes it off, you know? And it's. Yep. That's how you find more use, I guess, out of a song when you've been doing it for 40 years, because that song came out in the late 60s or something like that. Totally. um, uh, 
also on top of that, though, I've heard David Gray talk about not doing a song because it was that song for him that was like the song he always has to do. And he could not find a way as a performer into doing it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like he couldn't he couldn't get himself to to perform it the way he wants to be able to perform, which is being really present. And so he took that bag of tricks. Uh, He took that trick out of his bag. And, yep. you know, a lot of people were going to hear Babylon, <laughs> but he wasn't playing yeah. it for a while, you know. So that's, that's right. interesting. Yeah. So if you're an improviser, then the idea is, OK, maybe this is a thing I do a lot and it it seems to do well, but I don't want to coast on it. So right. let me find another thing that I can be excited about. Yeah, and then that'll be your thing for a little while until it gets to be too too right. done, and then you find your new thing. Yeah, totally. And then just keeping that bag growing, and so every if you won't find anything new if you don't take those chances, and so you'll just have the same old dusty things in your bag. Right, right. And at some point, there's maybe things when life gets to third beats, <laughs> then mm-hmm. uh, you can take those. Uh, a couple of those tricks that you used independently and meld them into one new trick. Right, absolutely. That could be a beautiful thing that happens in somebody's life as a as a performer. Totally. I like it. I like it. There Me it is. Too. This is a really great <laughs> talk. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, yeah. I had a great time talking to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I did as of well. Course. I think a lot of people are going to learn from it. She's so nice and so awesome. She's a dynamic performer, but she's also a really great person. I I immediately liked her when I met her when she was here because she's just so open and kind and and helpful. And I think you get that from the interview as well. I hope you learned a whole lot. I did. Why don't you check out heartofamerica.com? That's some work she did. That's heart without the E, H-A-R-T, of America.com. It's some work she did through Dad's Garage. And you can also go to dadsgarage.com and find out what they are doing in Atlanta, Georgia. If you ever make your way there, you can check out their shows. Follow us online. You can follow her on Twitter, at Amber C. Nash. And you can follow her character's Twitter account, which is at Pam's Gossip Train. You can follow us at There It Is Pod and me, at Jason Farr Jokes. Uh, where I uh, retweet a lot of things Andy Richter says and every once in a while write a joke. You can also go to our website and find, as I said earlier, old episodes and old blogs. There it is, pod.com. Well, that has been it. This is the last episode of 2016, and it has been a rough year, but I started this podcast, and that was a good thing for me. So I very much appreciate you all being here and listening especially if you've listened to every single episode so thank you to my girlfriend because you're the one who has listened to every single episode thank you all so much for being here until next time be good to each other the music for the theme song was created by neil brooks the rap was written and performed by nick acevedo the logo for there it is was created by jeff prater the there it is podcast is produced by jason farr 